0: Alright, go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to get started here. <clears throat> okay, so hopefully you have your Bible. good and grab it really quick. Don't worry. I'm not stealing Brad's thunder tonight. You guys have had enough of me. Uh, hopefully you have your Bible. Grab it. If you don't, you can use your app or whatever. I'll, I, haven't, I haven't told Colton about these verses, but you can just listen along. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says this. says, And he, talking about Jesus, right? So, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What Paul's saying there is there's specific gifts that Jesus himself gives to his church, gives to the people of God. Okay, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Okay, think about gifts. Gifts for a second right He gives these people that are themselves gifts to the church okay? <clears throat> My good friend Brad genuinely believes in Ephesians 4 teacher. His mind um, his mind works differently than most minds. Like I read probably a book and a half a month. He reads like a book and a half a week. Okay, so he's going to do a lot of reading for you and be able to give you a lot of information. But more than that, his his knowledge and his brain, it really has been redeemed by Jesus for the purposes of Jesus. One of my favorite things about Brad is how excited he gets about Jesus, how pumped up he gets about Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to invite Brad up really quick. Will you give him a hand? So tonight is extra special and here's why. Brad is one of my favorite people in the entire world. He is arguably my favorite preacher in the entire world, at least under 60 for sure. Come on! And tonight he's going to preach one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. So it's like the trifecta, okay? It's, it's pretty incredible. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for him before he gets started tonight. Will you join me? Uh, Father, thank you for the gifts that you give us. Thank you that they don't exist for us to like make a name for ourselves or to try to validate ourselves. No, they exist for the benefit of others. Like you've given Brad a gift, you've given every single person in this room gifts, spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. We're like delivery boys and girls. We get to deliver your love to the people around us through the gifts that you've entrusted to us for them. And I thank you that Brad's a living embodiment of that. And I pray, God, that you would right now, uh, every heart in the room, would you just kind of help us to kind of lay aside um, what's been going on this week or maybe even what's been going on tonight with like an expectant heart that we're going to receive from you, Holy Spirit. We're gonna receive your love through the gift that Brad is. So, I love you guys very much. Love you too, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Guys, give Brad another hand, will you?
1: Oh, come on. <laughs> love you. Thank you. Um, hello. Glad to be here. Uh, it is. It's a privilege being here. Uh, I love this couple a whole, whole lot. I uh, miss them a ton. We moved, we were a part of Restored San Diego all together. And then my wife and I, uh, God called us about two years ago to move from San Diego up to the Valley. We say L.A. It depends on how well you know L.A. We are northernmost part of L.A., the least sexy part of L.A. Um, it is the Valley. Uh, so it sounds cool on our website, Restored L.A., but if you're in Northridge, it's not as cool as it looks. So um, we're there. We love it. God has, like, grown our heart back to that spot. That's where my wife and I grew up. So our family's there. Uh, it's it's fun. And when we moved up there, um, I remember this stage. Um, it, it's, it, it is fun. It's exciting. It's kind of awkward sometimes. uh, When we started our church gatherings in our backyard, uh, we were there three weeks until a next door neighbor knocked on the door um, and and someone's like, hey, there's someone new to the church. I was like, sweet. So I run out and I'm like, what's up? She was like, this will never happen again. I was like, oh, okay. Is it it the parking or was it the noise? Like there's like 30 of us. She's like, it just won't happen again or I'll call the cops. I was like, all right, sweet. So we we had to get a new spot um, and and jump into a library that was like the most awkward library books everywhere. It was my dream, but um, it was was really weird and awkward. So I don't know where you're at tonight. Uh, Maybe this is like totally your first experience in the church, and this is your new normal, um, or this feels really awkward. Let me tell you this. Uh, You are privileged to be here tonight. Uh, I believe it so much. Uh, to be under their leadership uh, and the rest of the team's leadership uh, is a gift uh, that you're here and you get to enjoy family uh, as a church uh, and see Jesus clearly. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to share a little bit of my story. We're going to jump into Galatians. Grace alone, Galatians is one of my favorites. Uh, I kind of asked Tom if I could use this text. Uh, he was, gave me another text and I was like, I don't know, man. The Spirit's leading me to Galatians 2. Uh, so it worked out by God's grace. Uh, but if you've got a Bible, run over to Galatians chapter 2. My story is, I think it's a weird one. Um, I I think it'll become more and more common as the gospel is is clarified in this nation, Um, but I grew up in the church. Uh, I was a a church kid. My parents took us to church. I don't remember a single Sunday. We didn't go to church. Uh, We were Lutheran, Uh, so it was kind of like a Hymnals. You'd bow. Uh, very old school. Um, ac- I was an acolyte, so I would light the candles, uh, go into the back room, and bow. I never knew what I was doing. I just knew if you mess up, God's probably going to kill you. Um, so it's a little scary, uh, but but it was it was the real deal. Every Sunday we're there. We'd sing hymnals. Um, I didn't like it much, but I knew that God existed. I, I was pretty convinced that God existed, um, and I knew He was just angry. I was going of those two things, generally speaking. He exists, and He gets angry. If you do bad stuff. So I did my best to do good stuff. Um, and according to teachers, I did pretty well. From kindergarten to eighth grade, I won the Christian Citizenship Award seven times. So I know. So I was just morally superior to everyone. Um, I, and the, the one or two years I didn't win, I was very upset that the other loser kid like won. And I, I was. I was judgmental toward that kid. He didn't deserve it. I did. Um, but that's just who I, I was. I was externally, uh, my heart was a mess. But on the outward appearance, I was pretty good. Um, didn't cuss, uh, didn't smoke, didn't drink, was a virgin till the day I got married. Um, didn't struggle with pornography. I mean, kind of the main things you hear in youth group, don't do. I would take notes. I'm like, don't do it or else God's going to get you. So I, I, I did pretty well um, not doing those things. Now, at 18 years old, I started preaching. I was asked to preach in the junior high ministry. Um, and I started preaching for two years and those sermons I still have to this day. They are the most humbling, um, messages that I can ever listen to. I preached for two years. I rarely mentioned Jesus. I rarely mentioned the gospel. I would just open up the Bible. I'd study a lot. I wasn't a heretic. Um, But I would open the Bible and I'd find commands, and there are commands in the scriptures. There's there's quite a few of them, and I would read it and I'd be like, Hey, don't gossip. All right, kids. Here's three ways not to gossip. One, pretend your mom is next to you. Would you want to gossip and your mom hear you? No. Two, I would just give these like practical things that like anyone would be like, Yeah, that's it. That works. Um, And then I'd pray and then kind of call it a day. And at 20 years old, um, I was in a really funky spot. Uh, I felt very far from God, uh, but I thought that was just kind of what's normal. That's kind of just my whole story. It was God, I keep him at a distance through my good works. Um, and at 20 years old, God brought two men into my life. And, and through those two men, Andy, who's one of the pastors, restored San Diego. And Bobby is another pastor in San Diego. Um, I heard the gospel for the very first time and I got saved at 20 years old. So um, that might confuse you that I started preaching at 18 and got saved at 20 imagine being me right I mean I, I wasn't playing a game I, I wasn't like here's the fake Brad I'm, I'm I'm faking everyone out I've got this secret life over here that's shady and I'm just up here preaching no no I, I was convinced I was a Christian because all I ever heard in sermons was be good be good try hard do better and I was like I'm crushing it like cool Now, I didn't have any affections for Jesus. I didn't understand his grace at all. I didn't understand that he loves me, and I didn't understand that I was actually wicked deep in here. And God, in his grace, revealed those things to me over a season of a couple of months that showed me that I didn't know him. That when he rebukes the Pharisees, that that your, your words, they praise me, your mouth is close to me, but your heart is far from me. That was like my life verse, just not knowing it. I said the right things, I preached decently, but I didn't know him. And tonight what we're going to look at in a text is really clarifying this message of the gospel, answering how is it possible for anyone to preach for a couple of years and not be saved? What is it actually that gives us acceptance before God? What what is it, if it isn't these good works, what is it that God looks at and goes, yes, you're mine. And with that, what is it that causes us to actually begin changing from our hearts, not just changing externally? Because you'll meet some atheists who are really nice, who do really good things. Is there a difference between Christians and atheists? The text tonight is going to answer that. So Galatians chapter 2, is this week 3? Sweet. So you guys should have up to 2 memorized, hopefully. Um... There's a lot going on. Galatians, I mean, Paul is just, if, if, if you've missed the last two weeks, the Apostle Paul, he's not playing nice. Uh, the church at Galatia, it was planted. It was started on the foundation of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace. And they had begun to move on from the gospel. They had gone, thank you. Good news about grace, exciting. Now let's get really good and moral. And the Apostle goes, you're fools, Who's bewitched you? Don't you dare move on from this message of grace. You don't move on from it. You move deeper into it. And so often, I bet for many of us in this room, we've moved on from the message of grace. Grace is for the bad people out there. We need just to be told the good things. And Paul would go, you're a fool. Me too. Let's go. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 But when Cephas, Cephas is Peter's other name, nickname, whatever you want to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Yikes. What did he do? He must have been with some prostitutes or something shady. Let's see. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he... Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, I would fear a circumcision party, but. What, what that is, is it's talking about the Jews. Um, they were a group of men and women that came from Jerusalem sent by James. Uh, and it was a group that were Jewish and they had all of their eating customs and things from the Old Testament. And Peter, we're going to see what happens after he fears the circumcision party, these people, the Jewish people, which he himself was a Jew. And the rest, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay. Depending on how much you understand about the Old Testament, New Testament, Jews, and Gentiles, this could be very confusing. But I want to try to help paint a little picture of what's going on. Um, Jesus was Jewish. Hopefully you might not know that, but he was Jewish, like genuine Jewish. Um, Memorized the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament yet. Uh, His scriptures were what we call the Old Testament. That was his Bible. Um, and, and, And what that Bible, the Old Testament, has are a ton of laws. There's 613 laws uh, to be exact. And these laws were God's grace to his chosen people saying, here's how I want you to live. You're mine. I've redeemed you. I've rescued you from Egypt. You don't work in order to get me to love you. I've already proven my love by rescuing you from the slavery of Pharaoh but here's what it looks like now to live in my family, to live as my kids. And he gives his laws. And some of those laws were food laws, dietary laws, um, purity laws for the temple and all these different types of laws. So Jews were separated from Gentiles for a lot of reasons. But one of them was just simply their dietary laws. God had said, don't eat these types of foods and you can eat these types of foods. Gentiles non, are non-Jews, track with me history lesson just for a few, because it is important, um, they would eat anything. So it'd be really hard, it'd be like if you're gluten-free and you're at a party filled with tons of donuts, right? It's just like, this is, it's not fun. It's not gonna work out well for you. You've got these different issues here. Uh, so Jews and Gentiles, in some ways, began to see each other as enemies. They were separated from them. So, um in Jesus, what Jesus did was he fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly and created a new covenant with his chosen people, saying that now the Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God as well through his work alone, not through obedience to the Old Testament laws. Whole other story there. Tom will unpack it for you. But um, so the early Christians, think about this: the early, the earliest Christians, they were all Jewish. Jesus' first disciples, they were all Jews. So this is why in Acts, we're gonna see Gentiles getting saved and the Jews are like, "That? yeah? Like, is that, is that okay? Like, non-Jews can be a part of this story? And Jesus is like, hello? That was the whole point of why I came, yeah. Um, so this is a part of it. So for them, they're, they're in the beginning stages of trying to figure out what this looks like. Different laws that they had always obeyed, different groups of people now all coming together under the name of Jesus, eating together. Similar. Honestly, it would be like Bloods and Crypts both getting saved and joining the same church. People who had been taught their entire life that is the enemy. All of a sudden, you're up there getting communion. You're like, uh, I, uh, whoa. And maybe Bloods and Crypts is kind of crazy. Maybe you think crazier. Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> I know, right? Sharing communion. This is. The reality of what Jesus does. He invites people from diverse backgrounds and goes, You're under my banner of grace. So Peter, eating with Gentiles, he's enjoying pork and shrimp for the first time in his life under the grace of Jesus. And some of the Jews from Jerusalem show up and Peter gets nervous and he goes, uh, and he walks away from the Gentiles, leading other Jews to walk away from the Gentiles and go like, we actually probably shouldn't be eating with you right now. And Paul sees it and goes, what are you doing? You hypocrites. No, 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 no. You're not walking in step with the gospel because the gospel says that all are equal now. The gospel says that grace covers even our dietary laws. So he says you've acted hypocritically here and this is a big deal, big enough for him to condemn him to his face. Can you imagine if I just called Tom out? I need to condemn you in front of everyone. <laughs> like this is intense. This is a huge deal to the apostle Paul. Let's keep going. Your Bible has a heading. Most scholars are like, we're not sure if he's still talking to Peter here. Anyways, doesn't matter, probably too much. Verse 15. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So real quick, justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means to stand before God and be declared right. Can you imagine? Not, not your boss, not your spouse, not your best friend. God. You in his presence. And he goes, good. Good be pretty awesome. And what Paul just said is that doesn't come by you being a good boy or a good girl. It comes by you having faith in the good, perfect work of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. But if if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Should be underlined or highlighted or something. It's a good verse. Verse 21. They're all good. They're all inspired. Anyways, 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay. So, one of the biggest issues the early Christian, the early Jewish Christians had, was they were thinking that the law, God's commands, just when you think law, think God's commandments that were good, They were thinking that they could stand before God. If they obeyed them just enough, then God would go, now you are acceptable to me. What Paul is saying is, no, no, no. If that were possible, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. If you could work your way to God by being just a good person, Jesus didn't have to come and die for you. The way you're using the law is actually wrong. The law, God's commandments are good, okay? They're good, but they have zero power to change your heart. And many of the early Jewish Christians were buying into the lie that just you could read commandments on a wall and then go, all right, I'm going to crush it today. No, no, no. What the law does is it simply exposes your heart and shows you that you actually need a savior. This is why I'm always confused when people are like, we need to get the Ten Commandments back in the classrooms. Like, do you understand what the Ten Commandments should be doing? The Ten Commandments in the classrooms should just be showing children that they can't live up to God's laws. That's the purpose of the law. It's to show you what's right, it's to show you what's wrong, and it's to show you what's missing, what you are incapable of doing. One of the best illustrations I've heard of the law is it's like an MRI, My uncle uh, just recently had huge surgery on his brain. They found a mass in his brain, so they had to go in and cut it, found out through the MRI. Here's what happened. When they did the MRI of his brain and they saw the mass, they didn't take him out and go, we gotta get him back in there. No, no, the MRI just shows you something. He's not gonna sit in an MRI machine for weeks and then it's like, how is it? Uh Uh-oh, it's growing. This is not helpful. No, what do they have to do? They have to cut into his skull and remove it. The MRI just shows you what's wrong in the same way the law shows you what's wrong. So when the law says you shall not lie, you shouldn't be like, I won't lie. You should be like, I'm a liar, I need help. That's what the law is primarily supposed to do to you. But so much of my story was, I thought I could just throw the law out on people and I was just so confused why they weren't getting better like me. So confused why they weren't cleaning their lives up like I had. When in reality, I just had a low view of the law. I saw it and I was like, I think I can do that. And when I, when I didn't, when I lied, I was like, well, here's my excuse. I, I've got to blame it on somebody else. It wasn't really me lying. It was just kind of a, a white lie. It wasn't that bad. It was all this stuff. And Paul's going, no, no, you need faith in Jesus. So here's what I, I want to do for the rest of our time. Um, I want to unpack just for a little bit that, that our righteous position before God is by faith alone in Jesus and that same faith alone in Jesus fuels our righteous practice, okay? it's a lot going on, but just really two things. We have a righteous position before God through our faith in Jesus, and it fuels righteous practice, good deeds in the same faith in Jesus. You you never move on from faith in Jesus. So let's look for just a few minutes on our righteous position by faith. Look at verse 16 with me real quick. Paul says, you've got to get this. This is, this is crucial. This is what separates Christianity from every single religion in the entire world. I studied philosophy at Cal State Northridge. I minored in religious studies. Every single religion in the world says that you can work your way to God. Different rules, different paths, different things, all that kind of different gods, different heavens, different. all that stuff's different. You have to work your way to get To it, him, whatever. Christianity is all by itself. This says you could never work your way to God. God had to work his way down to you. And it is only by believing in him that you can actually be saved. Those are different. You have to get them. So when your Muslim coworker or Mormon coworker is like, ah, they're all the same, you can go, no, they're not. Um, They're not. All, All religions are not the same. Christianity is all by itself separated from every single other religion, which is fascinating, right? It's by faith in Jesus, and it's by this faith in Jesus that we're justified. Now, here's what's important. For those of you who are raised in the church, um, for those of you who maybe have a Christian background, we have to understand what faith is. The reason why it took me until I was 20 years old to actually get saved is because what I thought faith was was having the right answers. Here's the problem with that. Satan has the right answers this is what James two says. Oh, you're right in believing that God is one. Well done. So do the demons and they shudder. Okay, so, so you just having an intellectual consent in right propositional truths is not faith. Satan does not have saving faith in, G- in Jesus. There's something different here most Americans believe that they're Christians because they think that when they die, Jesus is going to hand them a scantron and there's going to be like three questions. Am I God? And they'll be like, yes. Did I die on a cross? Yes. Did I rise from the dead? Yes. Good job. Come on in. That's not faith. That's just getting an A on a test. So what is faith? Charles Spurgeon, old dead theologian, friend of mine, he says that faith consists of three things. Knowledge, belief, and trust. A lot of Americans have knowledge and even belief, but not saving trust. I have so many friends who think they're Christians and they have right theological convictions. They believe, they believe, if you ask them, did Jesus rise from the dead? They're like, yeah, <laughs> but they have zero fruit in their lives. They do not really know him at all because they don't trust him. And it was at 20 years old that this was exposed in my life, that I knew the right answers. I even believed, if I was given a test, that these answers are true. I had never trusted in Jesus because I didn't think I actually needed him. Here's the most practical question I can, I can challenge you with to ask you. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Not your knowledge. There's a decent chance if you're here tonight, you, you've put your knowledge into Jesus. Have you put your trust in him? When you stand before him, if he were to ask you, why should I accept you? Think of your answer. I won't call you out. Why should I accept you? If your answer is anything, anything other than Jesus, you're not a Christian. If it is because I'm a pastor, because I was faithful as a husband, I didn't cheat on my taxes, I didn't cuss that much in public, it, it, whatever it is, If it's anything, I was a nice person. If it's anything other than the blood of Jesus, you don't know him. You haven't trusted in him. When I was 20 years old, my friend Bobby, I wasn't saved yet. I preached, I was preaching the high school ministry, and um, he calls me up. He was the new high school pastor. I was kind of the I was too young to be the high school pastor. I was functioning as it, uh, but they brought in this guy who was a little bit older than me to be the high school pastor. And I preached the first Sunday he was there. And he called me um, that afternoon and he said, hey man, uh, I'd, I'd known him for just a few weeks. He said, hey man, um, I need to ask your forgiveness for something. I was like, okay. I remember where I'm standing in Kinko's in Simi Valley. I was like, what? what? Like, I'm, I'm like, what did this guy do? It must be bad. And he's like, I need to ask your forgiveness. Um, When you were preaching tonight, this morning, I wanted you to do really bad so that the students would think I'm a better preacher than you. I just want to apologize and say, just that's really wicked and um, it's not God's heart. God wants us to uh, to all succeed and preach the cross. And uh, so I just want to say sorry. And I remember standing there on the phone, thinking for the first time in my entire life, wait a second, that's how my entire life is run. I, I always want people to fail miserably so I look awesome. I've never seen that in my life. I've never, never vocalized that. No one had ever asked me, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. I just hope everyone fails so I look awesome. I've, n- I, I've never said those words, but the moment he confesses his sin, I begin to feel anxious because I start seeing my sin for one of the first times in my entire life and I'm going, this isn't good. And it was by Bobby continually confessing sins of pride, of judgmentalism, of lust, of greed, of anger that I I didn't want to hang out with the guy because every time he'd be like, dude, I'm sorry, man. Just confess sin. I'm like, stop it. You're making me feel bad. And I don't like feeling bad. I like feeling superior to other people. But he had such an awareness of himself and an understanding of God's grace that he was like, I'm a mess. And it was over the course of a few months that I just kept seeing more and more of my darkened heart and going, I actually need help. I never thought I needed help. Look at my uh, Christian citizenship awards. They're all along the wall. I don't need help. I'm crushing it. Because I've always compared myself to other people. I would never compelled to compare myself to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And the moment I began seeing Jesus clearly, the more and more I would start kneeling and going, I need a savior. I've been trusting in my own works. I've been trusting in my own plaques. I've been trusting in my own not looking at porn. I've been trusting in my I don't cuss, in my all of that stuff. I've been trusting in my good works instead of the perfect work of Jesus. And I did not know him. Can I beg you tonight, to ask him, am I trusting in anything other than him? Anything will lead you from him. This is why verse 20 is so important, you guys. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Follow his logic here for a second. I have been crucified with Christ. So you're dead if you're a Christian. Okay? It's no longer I who live but Christ's who lives in me. So who are you? Jesus? Sounds heretical. It probably is. But he's saying you're dead. The old you is dead. On the cross, you died with him as you placed your faith in him. The old Brad Sarian, the old Tom Logue, the old Chad Kloss, dead. It's like, well, I'm still here. Paul goes, I know. I'll keep going with this verse. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You must understand the good news of the gospel. The gospel tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. This is Probably the most important image of the gospel that we have in the scriptures union with Christ. This is salvation. The reason you are an adopted son or daughter is not because you were the prettiest kid in the orphanage, it's because your faith has united yourself to the perfect Son, Jesus Christ. You will not one day be glorified because you're kind of glorious in and of yourself. You will be glorified because your faith has united you to the glorious one, Jesus Christ. You will not be condemned when you stand before God because your faith has united yourself to the perfect, flawless Savior of the world who could not be condemned. You have to get that your faith connects you to him. That's why it's faith. It's an emptying of self. It's not a a, a trusting in yourself. It's not a believing in you. It's a rejecting of you, trusting in him. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of two men falling down Niagara. They're going down. Niagara Falls is about to happen. It is not a pretty sight as their boat had capsized. There were men on the shore and they threw a rope to the two men and they both grabbed onto this tiny little rope. And they just said, hold on, we'll pull you in. As a huge log was floating nearby, one of the men looked at the tiny rope and he rejected it and grabbed onto the huge log, thinking that there was more security in the big log. And to his death, he plummeted. What saved the man with the little rope? His connection to the men on shore. It was his faith in them, not the size of his faith. It was what his faith was in, the object of his faith. Some of you are like, I don't have a lot of faith. You don't have to have a lot of faith. You just have to have enough faith in the right person. There are men and women who have more faith than you, but their faith is placed in the wrong object and it will lead to destruction. Your faith can be like a mustard seed, Jesus says. He'll do the growing. Trust in him. And as we get this, we be, begin to be men and women who walk in good works. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of good works. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grace guy. I preach grace relentlessly because it terrifies me that men and women could hear rules all day long and not know Jesus. But what Titus tells us, Titus 2, 11 to 14, is that grace actually trains us to renounce ungodliness. It actually makes us zealous for good works. So if you ever hear a message on grace and it doesn't get you more excited to obey God, it's not about grace. Grace frees you from sinfulness to obedience. And obedience is always better. And this is why we have to get what Paul says to Peter when he is literally acting hypocritically, basically racist, and he's a fearing man. What does he say? Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul didn't go to Peter and go, stop it. Which, is, which, which could have worked, right? I mean, that, that probably would have worked in the moment. Peter would be like, sorry. He would have walked away. What's he say? Your actions, your conduct is not in step with the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news of what Jesus has done. Paul sees all of life through the lens of the gospel. Too many of us think the gospel just saves you, and then you move on. You're like, thank you for that, Jesus. I've got this boost for the next 60 years. No, the gospel is what saves you, the gospel is what guides you because the gospel is all about Jesus and his finished perfect work. So your actions, every single one of them matter and you're either stepping in line with the good news of what Jesus has done for you or you're not. You have to get this, this is what sin is. Sin is not just, oops, I messed up. Sin is you seeing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done and go, Actually, I'm not going to live in light of that. What is Peter doing? Peter is saying, I am not going to live in light of the good news of what Jesus had accomplished. What did Jesus accomplish? Jesus accomplished one family, Jews and Gentiles together. So the moment Peter gets nervous and fears the circumcision party and backs up, Paul doesn't go, you racist. He goes, bro, you're not living in line with the gospel because the gospel says that we're all one family now. The gospel teaches us how to be obedient men and women. You have to understand that every single time you sin, you sin because you don't believe in the good news and perfect work of Jesus. That's what every single sin. And if you don't get what sin is, it's gonna be impossible to fight it and say no to it. If you think sin is just whoopsies, you're never gonna take it serious, right? When, when I say something to my wife that's really unloving and mean, I can go, ah, sorry, I didn't mean that. Jesus go, you're a liar, you did mean that. Because every word that comes out of your mouth came from your heart. I'm like, no, thank you, Jesus. This works way better, I didn't mean it. What, what is sin? It's not a whoopsies daisies. It's a, I don't believe in Jesus and what he's accomplished, and I'm going to live in this light. So let me give you three quick things and then we'll wrap up three ways that this practically could be applied. Let's go with racism first because it really is in the text, the Jews and Gentiles. No one in this room, I believe, would be like, I'm a racist. No one, right? I mean, it's just not politically correct at all. Um, You'd be a fool. To not think that there are some tendencies in your heart to think you're a little, to not believe the fact that you're a little more superior than other people. It's a part of what sin does. Sin puts you at the, the center stage of the story and says, you're the best, you're most important. And racism is just a byproduct of that. I'm the best, we're the best, I'm superior. We're superior and we look down on other people. So is racism wrong? Absolutely. It's wicked and God hates it. Does God just go, stop being racist? No. How do we walk in line with the truths of the gospel with racism? Well, we have to understand what we're actually believing. We're believing that we're superior to someone else whether it's based on ethnicity, race, culture, whatever it is, I'm believing a lie in the moment when I say that quick thing or I have that ugly thought, whatever it is, what I'm believing is I'm better than those types of people. What does the gospel say? Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All In the gospel there is not a people group that is superior. In the gospel all men and women are equally wicked and sinful, yet loved deeply. That's what it means to walk in step with the gospel. To see Jesus hanging on a cross for who? Every and for you, when you have a thought that you are better, maybe it's not race, maybe it's age, maybe it's socioeconomic status, maybe it's something else in you that causes you to go, those types of people. When you hear that thought, you must immediately beg Jesus for forgiveness, go, it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. That person, whether he or she is homeless, whether she or he or she is unemployed, Whatever it is, is equally wicked as I am and equally loved. That's the truth of the gospel. And it creates a deep, deep humility. Okay? There's racism. We also see the approval of man. Peter, what does he do? He's hanging out. I think classic teen drama movie, right? There's like the dorky kid and the cool kid. It's kind of like starting to like this kid. And kind of one day in the lunch table area, sits down with him. and Then all the other cool football players come over and he's like, yeah, you're stupid. And he walks away like that's what's happening here because he cares about what they think. This is what we do all the time. What does it look like to walk in the truths of the gospel when it comes to approval of man? Here's the reality. All of us really like the other people's opinions. We crave people to like us. This is why social media is a huge deal. We crave desperately for men and women to like us. What's, is there a problem with that? <laughs> Probably. Um, I was going to say in moderation, but I don't know. Um, we don't need people's approval. This is why Paul in Galatians 1.10 says, am I, am I living for the approval of banner of God? Friends, I had to get rid of my social media because I would find myself on Instagram just refreshing to see how many likes I have on that new picture. I know I'm alone and no one here does that stuff. (laughs) Craving more followers on Twitter. Craving more retweets because I just posted something that was brilliant. Craving men and women to go, wow, you are special. Not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel tells me that through the cross of Jesus Christ, that God Himself looks at me and says, "I love you, and my love is enough for you." Psalm sixteen, eleven: In His presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Who am I to think I need someone else's approval? Think about all the stupid things we do just trying to get people to like us. Whether it's drinking too much. We had somebody in our church recently who got drunk New Year's Eve. Talking to her. Why? It wasn't because she was just craving alcohol. She was with a group of people who were drinking and she didn't want to be the one who didn't have more drinks in her hand. So she just kept drinking just to be a part of the crew. It's like, honey, The God of the universe looks at you and goes, I love you. I I approve of you. I like you. You don't don't need them to like you. That's walking in step with the truth of the gospel. The last thing is, is, is let's just throw out, just for fun, contentment in marriage. What does it look like to walk in step with the gospel in marriage? contentment in marriage well the reality is that all of us as sinful men and women it is very real that we lust after other men and women who are not our spouses And when i was in junior high ministry what we used to do with the kids that were struggling with pornography they'd wear a rubber band and they'd have to snap themselves every time they looked at porn or something yeah that works no <laughs> What's what's happening in our hearts when we lustfully long for someone else? What are we saying? Jesus, you're not enough for me. I need more. Jesus, I don't trust that you're sovereign over the marriage decision that I've made and I need my eyes to look elsewhere. I'm not walking in step with the truth of the gospel that he's enough for me, that his love is enough for me even if my marriage is a train wreck. I was talking with a buddy a few years ago who's struggling with pornography. And I said, dude, how do you say no when you do say no? Like, like what's your what's your what's your game plan? Like you're feeling struggling, you're feeling tempted toward porn. What do you do? He was like, Well, I just I tell myself, like, dude, you have a beautiful wife. I was like, how's that working? <laughs> He's like, it's not great. I don't know why. I was like, Because there's maybe more beautiful women on the internet than your wife? Like, Like if game plan is my wife, you might find someone more beautiful. And then what? Game plan must be a satisfaction in Jesus alone, that he alone can fill my desires of loneliness. He can fill my desires for comfort. He can fill my desires for approval, that I can find in him through his finished work at the cross, that it's enough. I can say no to even things like porn, even things like drinking too much because I have him. This is what it looks like to live in line with the truth of the gospel rather than just saying, stop it. I would beg you, church, that as you continue pursuing Jesus, that you would see that every single sin is a result of you not believing that Jesus is better and that you would pray your face off until you see that what he's accomplished on the cross was for you. The Apostle Paul generally talks in plural You, when he's saying you, it's generally the church. Here, 20. Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me, he gets personal. Yes, Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he died for you. Why? Because he loves you. That is the only truth that will be able to woo your soul to say no to sin say yes to him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I I thank you uh, for the work that you're doing. I thank you that tonight that you reveal our sin, not to rub our noses in it, but to show us that Jesus can cover it. I pray that anyone right now who's, who's feeling weightiness of sin, maybe even for the first time realizing that they've maybe not trusted you, they've had knowledge about you, certainly mm-hmm but they have not trusted you, that they would not just keep looking inward to themselves, but they would cast their eyes on Jesus, who loves them, who gave his life for them. Jesus, you paid our debt. We worship you because you love us and you have by your grace hidden us in you. Thank you for your mercy. We praise you and worship you. Thank you.